Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. My name is Larry Mishkin of the Hoban Law Group, and I'm here today with my co-hosts, Jim Marty and Rob Hunt. Uh, we have a very special guest today, Andy Greenberg of Society Jane in San Francisco. Andy was our very first guest on this podcast a while back, and now that we've exceeded 100 shows, hard to believe, uh, Andy has been kind enough to say that uh, she will join us again today and share more of her wisdom on uh, Northern California and marijuana and what's going on with that. So uh, we've got lots to talk about, lots of interesting stuff on the music side. Uh, Bill Kreutzmann's 75th birthday coming up. Uh, Trey Anastasio loses his John Kahn and uh, uh, Tony Markellis. Uh, very sad about that. And uh, if time permits, uh, Jim Marty was at the... Uh, 80th anniversary of Red Rocks last week, so all very good. Uh, Rob, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Larry. Lots happening in Canvas this week, lots happening in Grateful Dead World, and uh, really excited to hear uh, Andy tell about her story in San Francisco, so this should be a really fun show. Wonderful. Jim, what about you? Very good, yep. Well, we might want to touch on Dick's Picks 38. I listened to it extensively over the weekend, and uh, yeah, 73 is a standout year. Very interesting show because... Uh, it was the first time some of those songs have been played publicly, or at least one of the first few times. It is. It's a it's a tremendous release, and I was lucky uh, to grab it right before I uh, headed out of town for a few days here, so I've been able to listen to it, and it's, it, it really is outstanding. Um, just, you know, another good one that they released, so let's get to that. But uh, start us off, Jim. There's been uh, news in the world of 280E, unfortunately, maybe not the kind of news that we want to hear. Yes, uh, the IRS remains undefeated in its uh, enforcement of IRS Code Section 280E, uh, which denies deductions outside of cost of goods sold to cannabis businesses. Um, I fought the law and the law won on that one. I testified in tax court very early here in Colorado, and uh, <clears throat> you lawyers know what a Daubert challenge is, and the IRS raised a Daubert challenge. Um, the judge let me testify, and then invoke their Daubert challenge. So, uh, as I said, I fought the law and the law won. But the Irish remains undefeated. Uh, Harborside's case was turned down by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And then another California case, which, Larry, helped me with the correct citation. I don't have the citation, but I do know that the parties were Organic Cannabis Foundation and the Northern California Sm Small Business Assistance. Very unfortunate. The... Um, the Court of Appeals turned it down because they had filed their papers late. They took it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court agreed with the um, Court of Appeals that, yes, those papers were filed late, and we are not going to hear your case. So I've been saying for some time that the only change that's going to come to 2ED is going to come through Congress, uh, you know, House, Senate, signed by the President. That's the only way we're going to get 2ADE and that's going to include a very broad discussion of a federal excise tax. So I think we're several years away. Uh, so in the meantime, we need to uh, keep planning around 280E and minimize the non-deductible costs so that companies can, like Andy's here can be profitable on an after-tax basis. Well, and, you know, Jim, the thing that really jumped out at me when I was reading about those cases was not just the amount that these parties owed in taxes, which was huge, but the amount of penalties that were already being tacked onto them. So, you know, I mean, I guess for Harbor side, that's kind of how they've, you know, made their reputation, right? Being the guys who are willing to take that risk in the name of goodness for everybody else in the industry. But, you know, for these other two companies, uh, the Organic Cannabis Foundation with their taxes, plus their penalty, they're almost at $1.5 million that they're going to owe. That's, 
and you file a day late, that's not good. That's not good. Yep, a million here, a million there, and pretty soon you're talking about real money. Now, I have had success at the uh, at the field agent level on negotiating away the penalties, which brings down the interest. Sure, I guess if you can, you know, pay off the rest of it, maybe if you're lucky, you can. Uh, if you can get that, but you're right, it does add up to a lot. But you know, given what's going on in the industry, maybe it's not surprising. And Rob, you were going to tell us about a uh, a new deal that's going down right now. Well, not a new deal, more of just a congratulations to uh, Ascend Cannabis and to Abner Curtin and his team for taking a, a business in just several years and being, you know, one of the larger uh, kind of public listings that's happened this calendar year. There aren't too many MSOs that are still coming out. I think uh, Ascend is one of them, and I think we're expecting to see Pharmacan come out later this year. So, you know, it's one more uh, company that's been pushing, you know, around a billion-dollar market cap. So again, good for the industry to see another business that's uh, that big, that's you know really attracting real dollars. And so, just congrats to the Ascend team for getting across the line. And there's one more you know mid-tier uh, MSO that's now out there in the public domain. Wonderful, always good to hear about. You know, successful businesses are the key to the industry. And speaking of successful businesses, let's turn our attention to our guest Andy Greenberg, who is here today. Andy, so nice to have you back on our show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Larry. It's lovely to be here. What's going on with Society Jane? Tell us what's new. Oh, what's new with Society Jane? Well, having just paid our federal taxes, <laughs> I uh, have a particular feeling in my heart about 280E and still, for the life of me, don't understand how we are in a situation of taxation without representation when that seems to be what this country was actually built on. So it's very frustrating. Spoken spoken like a true attorney. <laughs> but on the business owner side of things, we're doing great. You know, we've been we were deemed an essential business early on during COVID. And so that's been um it's been nice to be able to get out of the house and it's been nice to be able to um sell new products as well as the ones that people have grown accustomed to as the supply chain at least in California, was also deemed essential. So we've been able to onboard a lot of interesting new things, like the Garcia hand-picked brand, which we're all very, very fond of, and um, seems to be gaining traction uh, throughout our customer base. We're getting a lot of new people, uh, not just women, but um, a lot of people who are really interested in the Garcia brand. So that's that's been great for us. And just really quickly for maybe some of our listeners who don't know you, just give a 30-second kind of overall view of you know what Society Jane does and what your focus is. Got it. So Society Jane started in 2015 as a collective, which was the entity available to us at that time, pre-adult use. And um, we were essentially an educational party provider. We would take the entire store, everything we were selling, and go to people's private homes and conduct sort of Tupperware parties for cannabis. We would do education. People would invite their friends, and we would tell them all the basics about cannabis, THC versus CBD, what does indica mean, all the, you know, the basics that we sort of forget about having been in the industry for so long. And then people would have a chance to shop and they could go home satisfied because they could take home whatever they bought, they could take it home and try it that night. After legalization occurred in 2016, 
we had to segue because there was no license uh, category for what we were doing. So we became a non-storefront retailer. We are essentially a delivery service now. We continue to do educational parties, but because of the way the regulations work, we can no longer have people buy directly at the parties. They have to place an order at the parties for next day delivery. And of course, all parties have been curtailed during COVID. So we've been delivery only, essentially. And our focus is on women grown, women made, and products that women like. And so we try everything, we vet everything, we curate a menu of products that we would use or that we think our sisters would use. And um, that seems to have worked so far. I could ask a couple of questions on the delivery because we're going to get delivery. We're going to get delivery here in Colorado. So um, do your... How does the delivery actually happen? Do you have a fleet of cars? Do your drivers use their own cars? How does it actually function? Well, I think every delivery service does it a little bit differently. For us, because we're a small player, we have our drivers use their own cars. They you know, keep track of mileage, and um, they have to have a dedicated GPS within the car. And it's all online people order online, or we have a lot of older ladies who don't go online. They'll just call us up on our landline and place their orders that way. Interesting. Do they call up in those situations with questions where they're like looking for you to help direct them in terms of what they should buy? Sometimes, sometimes they do. We have, we've saved some very funny messages from people. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of times people are trying cannabis for the very first time. Essentially, when they call up, they'll say things like, you know, I'm having a hard time sleeping, but I really don't want to feel high. And so we'll direct them to some high CBD products that could help them with sleep. And then inevitably, we'll get a call a week or two later saying, it worked okay at first, but now I'd like something stronger and I don't care about feeling high. <laughs> okay. So baby like clockwork. Mm-hmm. I love that. And, and what did you see uh, as a result of the, the COVID pandemic? Was there an, an, an uptick of sales with you like we experienced in Illinois and I know Jim has talked about in Colorado? Yes. So um, essentially at the very beginning of March, we were told that we would not be an essential service and that we would have to shut down. It was the night of St. Patrick's Day, 2020. So we had a huge sale and we went crazy and had a million deliveries. And then at about 10 p.m. on St. Patrick's Day, the city and county of San Francisco reversed and said we were indeed deemed essential And after that, we thought things would slow down because most of our existing customers had bought a lot of things during the sale. And in fact, it remained crazy busy for most of 2020. So yes, it it definitely, we saw a huge uptick. And were there people like who would call in and, you know, specifically buying to deal with the effects or the impact of, you know, dealing with lockdown and the pandemic? Oh, yes. And um, one interesting thing that happened towards the end of the year 
was that um, we onboarded a new product called CAN, C-A-N-N, -N, which is um, a low-dose cannabis carbonated beverage. It comes in a little can. And they had various flavors. And we started selling boatloads of that because people felt like they were drinking too much alcohol and gaining weight and waking up hungover. And a lot of these people were parents who had kids who were doing remote learning, and it was just too hard for them. This way, they could have a drink later in the day that's only 35 calories, two milligrams of THC, four milligrams of CBD, and great flavors, and no hangover. So we started, we started putting individual cans as gifts in people's delivery bags. Eventually, people are buying like, you know, four or five, six packs at a time. So that was, that was a huge thing. And every time we deliver to people, they say, this has really helped me with my anxiety, with, you know, dealing with my kids, with sleep, with not gaining any more weight during COVID. So I think that's been a big, a big plus for people. Awesome. Very nice. Can, can right now, I think is 25% market share of beverages in California. So it's, uh, they've taken off like wildfire. It's been sort of the same way that like the White Claw Truly revolutions happened on the alcohol side. Can has definitely capitalized on the, uh, the spiked seltzer uh, on the canvas side. And I think now GTI is carrying them in most markets. And now they're migrating to Canada as well. And they're actually powering uh, a partnership with a company called Valens up in Canada as well, using their technology um, for micro-encapsulation going into other products up there. Wow. And Rob, do you know... I've been seeing a lot about celebrity investors in Cannes. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, I know that their cap table is relatively decent. But I mean, look, there's celebrity investors now in, in almost any company you can think of. So it used to be everyone wanted the celebrity endorsement going into the product. Now it's behind the scenes. You know, you probably saw yesterday Chris Weber in conjunction with Jason Weil just announced a $100 million fund specifically to go after economic empowerment and fund, you know, uh, minority-owned businesses. So, I mean, there, there's a big trend of... Um, of celebrity behind the scenes putting capital into things, so it's it's not just on the on the side of putting out like a, a Garcia product, which by the way, tell me if I'm crazy off base. I'm thinking about coming out with a John Mayer product that uh, comes in like really good like bubblegum packaging, and uh, you know comes in like really soft colors. It's gonna have half the THC, and uh, it'll taste half as good. Oh, and I'll charge <laughs> twice as much for it. So do you think I could, do you think that would sell at your parties? Yes, I do. As long as they're not children's parties. Oh my goodness! Um, but tell us about the, this Garcia line of products, because you know, I mean, it seemed like every celebrity in the world has been coming out with you know a line of products and all sorts of musicians. And yet, while Mickey did admittedly come out with his his line of of pre rolls, the whole world's kind of waiting for Jerry, and now it's here. So, I, I, what what kind of feedback are you getting from your customers on that? We're getting great feedback on all the products. We're getting a lot of repeat customers on all the products. I think that the Mickey Hart, um, I forget what it was called, but his pre-rolls were very strong. That was all Chemdog, I believe, was the strain. And um, it kind of had a, I don't know if they had a limited audience, but it was not the right match for our particular demographic. Mm -hmm. The Garcia products, we weren't sure if they'd be a match, but they have proven to be one. And the rep has said, um, well, she's quoted Trixie as saying that they want the whole line to be 
very inclusive the way that Jerry was. So to that end, the they have products. They're they're getting their their source material, their flour from both indoor grows and outdoor grows throughout the state of California. So the the eighth jars are all indoor grown. The Boxes of joints are all outdoor grown, and I believe the Jerry's Picks, which is what the gummies are because they're shaped like Jerry's Picks, <laughs> those are combination of the two. Hmm, very interesting. So, you know, premium strain, do this as a carry a, a premium price? It does carry a premium price. So for an eighth jar, I believe we're retailing them for $55, which is... It- you know, higher than average. It is. And still $5 less than what we pay in Illinois. So that's a good deal as far as I'm concerned. Wow. And, and how much interaction, like actual out in front work, has, has Trixie and the estate done? Have they been, you know, like accessible to, to people who are selling the brands and, uh, you know, to add publicity or anything like that? Have you been able to communicate with any of those people or do you just work through your reps? As a retailer, we primarily work through our reps, but we're given a lot of marketing materials that involve the whole family. So Trixie and Annabelle and Sunshine and Mountain Girl have all made videos. They've made videos together. They do a lot of a lot of behind the scenes stuff where they've created playlists to go with each strain. They've created and that that's all on their Garcia handpicked website so it's very easy for us to to point to that and and tell our customers where to go to really enhance their experiences I love that that is so funny set lists <laughs> yeah set lists to enjoy each strain by and then there's Bertha which is the brand's airstream and Bertha goes all over the country and um, sells Garcia handpicked merchandise. Like the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile? Kind of. <laughs> Only a lot cooler. <laughs> well, I don't know. You kind of like that Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. That's true. When you see it on the road, you know you're going in the right direction, so that's cool too. Exactly. Well, that's great, and uh, so that's wonderful to hear that business is going well. you got all your uh, customers and everything. Garcia's online. What's next for you guys? We are plugging along. I'm not sure what's next for us um, in terms of growth. We're, we're looking at a few different options. Um, we're always looking at new products and considering new product lines coming on. Um, when Bertha comes back from Massachusetts later in the summer, we're planning an event with the Garcia handpicked brand. We're not sure what that will be yet. But we're planning something with her. And then once COVID restrictions ease up a bit, we've got a number of partnered events that are coming up and hoping to start doing the parties again. Wow. Okay, well, that's exciting stuff. Hopefully you'll, you'll do something at Red Rocks. Well, that would be great. I'll be in Boulder in June. You know, we can't really cross state lines with uh, Society Jane stuff, but... I would love to do something at Red Rocks. Well, that, I mean, that's really the next step, right, is they're just going to have to license the Garcia products into other states and, and let people eventually have them elsewhere because that's the only way the rest of us are going to be able to get our hands on it unless we come out to California. Well, I think they are in Massachusetts. Yes, they are. Oh. And I think... Oh, you told me that the Bertha Mobile was here, right? I did, and I think they might also be in Pennsylvania. 
They're in several states on the East Coast. I don't know if they have plans yet for Illinois. You may want to ask them, Larry. Till Illinois, you know, gets out of litigation and starts giving out licenses, who knows? We'll see. But eventually it would be nice to have them. I'm reaching out to some Colorado clients to get that here. But, uh, Andy, as I'm sure you know, Bob Weir's doing two shows at Red Rocks with the Wolf Brothers. I think it's June 4th and 5th, or right around there. I do know that. I may be there. Me too. And you just saw Bob Weir. Tell us, uh, share with us what it was like to be at uh, Terrapin Station this last, uh, Terrapin Crossroads, this last Sunday, ostensibly going to see Phil and Friends, and little Bobby Weir walks out. Nice segue, Larry. Uh, yeah, it was Saturday, actually. Saturday. And- we had tickets to Terrapin Crossroads. They're doing a really great job of putting on the outdoor shows. Phil set up a whole stage that's permanent out there. It's beautiful. It's right on the canal on a green lawn outside of the building. And they're selling tables. So you buy a two, four, or six top table, and then you have a square around it in which you can dance and move around. You can leave to go to the bar or to the bathroom, but it's it's very comfortable and the tables are far apart and it's a really lovely way to spend an afternoon. So um, Phil's band that day, even before Bobby showed up, was stellar. It was Phil and Graham Lesh. It was Jason Crosby on keyboards, Jackie Green on guitar, you just can't beat him, and then John Molo on drums. Who I love, of all the drummers, I love John Molo. Fantastic. Great Phil and Friends. Yes. So already a fantastic band. And then right before the show started, when all the band members were on stage already, that's when Bobby showed up, and everybody went crazy. Phil yelled off the stage and said, Bob, do you want us to start without you or are you going to join us for the first song? And I don't know what Bob said, but he joined them for the first song. The set list was spectacular. It was peppy. It was upbeat. Sometimes, personally, I feel like Dead & Co. is a little bit slow, but this was a very fast-paced, good energy show So Bob played with them for the first three songs, and then he and his family left. And what I found out later was that he went into San Francisco, and there was a benefit happening at Fort Mason with Willie Nelson and Lucas Nelson, and Bob joined them for the evening for this benefit. So he was he was he spent the whole day being a guest guest star. Quite the double header! Holy cow! What were uh, some of the song highlights? Oh, my gosh, the song highlights. Well, you can't beat a show that starts with St. Stephen. Right. Then they teased the 11 a little bit in the middle of St. Stephen, but they didn't quite get there. Um, uh, What were the other? Uncle John's band, huge highlight. Um, Shakedown was amazing. Um, The Jack Straw, Bob had left by the time they played Jack Straw, but that was a huge highlight. Um, uh, let's see. Midnight Hour was amazing. All the songs were amazing. Warfret. You know, Jackie Green, I'll say, he brings a unique, very young, very peppy, good juju energy to the whole thing. So I think he elevates everybody else's game. They're all fantastic musicians, but he is so positive and he just radiates good energy. And you just can't help but 
but respond to that. And I think if the, the crowd was small because the tables are so far apart, but you could really feel the energy in the air despite that. And I think that's a, a kind of an amazing feat to pull off with a crowd that's so sparse. That's cool. I agree with you about Jackie Green. I love him. I have a, a Jackie Green story. Go for it. So the first time I saw Jackie Green was at Red Rocks. And um, I forget who else was playing that night. It might have been the Allman Brothers, but I was uh, doing my, I was covering the show for the newspaper as a, a journalist and got there early and sat down close to the first or second row at Red Rocks. And there's this band out there um, in the afternoon, you know, four or five o'clock, kind of warming the crowd up. And there's this young guy playing keyboards with braces on. He was so young, he had braces on. This is probably 2005. And that was Jackie Green. Oh my God! Wow! I saw him play with Phil, with Phil and friends in 2008 or nine at the Riviera Nightclub in Chicago, which is this tiny little nightclub about two miles away from Wrigley Field. And the Cubs were in the playoffs, so it pulled away just enough people that you could breathe in the Riviera Nightclub. It wasn't overcrowded, and they played a long set. At the end of the night, they played a, a killer uh, "Help Slip Frank," and we all thought that was the end of it and then Phil dropped a bomb and just launched right into Viola Lee Blues and they jammed out for another half an hour after that and the, the quote from Phil later on was he had to show Jackie what it was really like when you get these you know Chicago crowds happen to be there you know up and running we don't stop we just keep playing into the night you know kind of thing but Jackie was great I, I, I loved him he, he, I think he does I think he motivates them to play at a different level well another story I heard on how that got started with Phil and Jackie Green and I may not have this exactly right, but Phil was sitting in his car waiting for one of his sons to come out at some event the son was at and listening to his radio, and he heard a Jackie Green song. And he was so impressed that he looked up Jackie Green, and that's how they got started playing together. Okay. Rob, Bill Kreutzmann's turning 75. Yeah, he sure is. Uh, it's exciting, and I think that, you know, it's, it's easy when we sit on this show and we talk about highlights from other uh, members of the band, cause it's pretty easy to talk about your favorite Phil bomb dropping into another one, or, you know, your favorite time that Phil dropped a bomb to open a shakedown, or, you know, your favorite Garcia licks, or things that Bobby did, and, you know, super, you know, preening of, of Bobby on stage, but it's, it's sometimes harder to identify what it is that you really like about, you know, the drummers, and obviously, you know, it's one of the only bands where you know, drums was, was different every night, but a lot of it was, you know, Mickey attributed where, you know, he'd be on the beam or on the beast or doing other things that you could really like point your finger at. But sometimes you forget just how much, you know, Billy held down that band and, and how creative he was and the fact that he was the drummer that was there all along and all the things that he's done since and how much respect he has from the musical community and, you know, all the young musicians that look up to him that play in Billy and the Kids. But there's so many musicians that look up to uh, to Billy as a as a drummer, and I think that you know it's time to take a little bit of time just to sort of celebrate what he's done as being you know one of the founding members of the band and just uh, unique parts of his career. And so I don't know if any of you guys have any highlights you can point to, but I certainly got a couple teed up. But you know, anyone have any things they remember about you know Kreutzmann doing something exceptional or you know what it was you loved about uh, Bill over the last you know 55 years and playing you know Grateful Dead music. I just thought he was fun. You know, he was always seemed, you know, kind of like the, the happy go lucky guy in the group. I, you know, the story was he was always close to Garcia and that was nice. And the story was that he was, you know, he was, he was the driving force behind a lot of the drugs that the, uh, that the group wound up taking. And, uh, my story is when they did the 2002 Terrapin family reunion at Alpine Valley, um, there were some of the guys who were in the group that I were there with, 
a lot of San Francisco crowds, so Andy probably knows them all. And one of them uh, uh, insisted that he was best friends with Kreutzmann or he had some connection through to Kreutzmann and disappeared uh, for a while. It was an all-day affair and then showed up right before they were coming out on stage and was running around with the violin and said, this is the, this is the acid that they're going to be dosed on. I got it from Billy. And we were all like, oh, well, if you got it from Billy, right? So, you know, everybody took a little taste to see what it was. We all had a great time, great show. Who knows? But, you know, if you, if you could believe that that's where it really came from, then it made it that much better. And why not? He seemed like that kind of guy. No, I've always enjoyed Billy. You know, uh, I've heard some people say when they got the second drummer, the question was why? That they thought Billy was adequate uh, on his own. But I've always enjoyed uh, Mickey's thunderous drum solos, and, and I guess the story I heard is there was times when uh, Mickey Hart and, and Kreutzmann, Billy Kreutzmann, would feel each other's pulse before going on stage, and they were totally in sync. After that many years, it'll do it to you, right? What about you, Andy? Um, one of my great memories of Billy is from the Fare Thee Well concerts in um, Santa Clara, before they went to Chicago, and Billy, on the second day, on the first day, Jay Blakesburg, my photographer friend who's been on your show, was driving a golf cart around with Phil and Jill in the back, waving to the people at the Shakedown Street and all over the crowd. And the next day, Billy wanted in on the action, so Jay got the same golf cart and drove Billy around Shakedown Street and the crowd, and people were really, really excited to see him. It was very cool to see them just mingling with the rest of us. One of the things about Bill Kreutzmann also, I think, that you know, really makes him unique is that he was always so approachable. And I know that you know, people have ended up at his house in Hawaii. I know a friend actually ended up crashing his wedding a few years back, and he was actually really magnanimous about you know, having people that he didn't know to show up at the wedding. He's like, yeah, sure, the more the merrier. So you know, by all accounts, uh, he's always been the guy that you know, never has shied away from just kind of going out there and hanging out with the crowd. So Andy, your story tracks really nicely against you know, everything I've heard about him as a person. I've, I've never met Billy. I've met a lot of the other band members over the years, but uh, but Bill always seems like, you know, probably the guy I'd want to go just hang out and have a beer with. And Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, but at the first Obama inauguration, I believe that some version of the dead played at one of the, the parties. And as I recall, our mutual friend Jack Gold was at the party and actually has a picture of, of them, of him with, I think it's with Bill. And Bill's all dressed up in his formal attire that they wore to the inauguration. And uh, uh, and our friend was saying, you know, very approachable guy, was more than happy to chat with him, take a picture with him and everything. And yeah, he does kind of seem like, you know, the guy in the group who would be fun to hang out with after the show, right? With Jerry, there's too much pressure. What what the hell do you say to Jerry Garcia? I, I don't know. And Bobby, I always just imagined after the show was off doing his thing with his fan club, whoever that might be. And, you know, Phil had kids that he was going home to and, you know, they all just had stuff. But there's Billy and he's just hanging out and he just he seems like, you know, he would be the guy you'd like to, you know, spend a Saturday evening with. Sure, sure. Hey, um, we do have some fish news, but I have a quick Billy story uh, to transition. And in 2007, mm -hmm. I think, is when... Fish came back from hiatus and did four shows at Red Rocks, and Bill Kreutzmann sat in with them, and they did an amazing character zero, and Bill sat in for pretty much the whole second set. Yep, and you pointed us to that, and I've actually checked that out on YouTube, and it's, uh, it's worth checking out. He's having a lot of fun up there with John Fishman, who's kind of an irreverent character himself, so uh, I'm sure the two of them got along just fine. But... Um, 
Larry, why don't you lead us into a little bit of sad news on the uh, fish front? Yeah, well, since you, we were talking about fish now, uh, unfortunately this week uh, the fish family lost uh, Tony Markellis, who was a bass player extraordinaire. And uh, for those of you uh, old enough to understand the reference, he was to the Trey Anastasio band, uh, which John Kahn was to the Jerry Garcia band, meaning his permanent bass player. Uh, when he wasn't with Fish, this is the guy who uh, who played bass for him. And uh, you know, there's all sorts of quotes from Trey going around about how important he was. But Tony played with a lot of people. He wasn't just uh, he wasn't just Trey's guy. He played with a number of other bands and a number of other musicians. Uh, people who have been uh, commenting on him, uh, you know, for the last couple of days. And, you know, for me, it just always is amazing how tight that musical community is. And, you know, we kind of think of the bands as all going off in their own directions and doing their own things. But on a certain level, you know, they're all very much aware of one another. And they all kind of, you know, somehow overflow and interact, you know, either guesting with somebody or, you know, doing something else with somebody, different projects. And Tony seemed like that kind of guy who just was... Uh, Kind of everywhere, and uh, Jim, I think, as you noted, uh, he was t- you know he was tied in enough to the, the Fish family itself that he actually co-wrote some of the Fish tunes. Got a Jabu, I think, and you had mentioned First Tube sand. earlier, and uh, and Sand, yeah. So you know, I mean, that's 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 no small feat to be uh, you know to be get uh, composing credits or at least partial composing credits for some of the biggest Fish tunes out there. So um, I know that uh, for my Fish friends, it's a it's a big loss. It is, and many of us uh, got to see him recently when, uh, during the pandemic last fall, Trey did some bro- uh, some Broadway shows with the band, and uh, Tony was the bass player. Right, uh, right. That his series of shows from the Beacon, correct? And and he had Tony out there with him playing every night, and uh, yeah, uh, he he he's just an amazing talent. He was a young guy, relatively speaking. I think just in his mid fifties. Um, so since that's younger than me, he is a young guy, um, but, uh, it's a shame. And, um, you know, I guess that's just the, you know, part of rock and roll, right? That, uh, one by one, these guys all, all do die on us. And, uh, then there's Phil who's still out there playing at 80 years old. So, you know, I mean, we take the good where we can get it and, and everything else. But, uh, on the good news on the fish side is, uh, that, uh, Trey has announced that he's going to play three shows in June, live at SPAC, uh, Saratoga Springs Performing Arts Center in New York. Uh, as an aside, a, a favorite dead shed where I never managed to go see them, unfortunately, but or I never saw fish there either, but I always heard great things about that place. But what I didn't realize is that although he is a University of Michigan graduate, go blue, Tony Markellis had moved and was living in Saratoga Springs. So I'm just wondering whether that's uh, Trey's way of paying tribute to him uh, by announcing the shows in Saratoga Springs or whether that had already been predetermined, I don't know. Um, but he will, uh, he'll be playing three live shows there. So for people who have been itching to see Trey live, you'll finally have your chance if you can make your way to, uh, to New York State and see him there. Rob, did you ever make it to Saratoga Springs? Yeah, I love SPAC. It's a great venue. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's super easy to get to from, from New York City. It's about two hours away, so it was one of those places where everyone felt like they were going upstate. But um, but really, you know, an easy venue to get to with great sound. Uh, really similar to um, to Deer Creek in a lot of ways. I've been to Saratoga Springs to see fish. Oh, you saw fish there. Okay, I know that for the, the fish fans, it's one of their favorite places. Yes, it was a Father's Day weekend. I call it the Father's Day Massacre because my younger or older son Jack almost got arrested going into SPAC 
it was a um, sobriety checkpoint going into SPAC. We had brunch, and we had a couple drinks with brunch, and I said, uh, you're driving, Jack, but don't have another drink. And I saved his butt because uh, they breathalyzed him, and he flew just under, and the cop just threw the stick down on the ground and said, you can go. So all you people going to SPAC, make sure your driver is sober going into SPAC. Very kind of the cops to do it on the way in. I got to give them a little bit of credit to say, uh, you know, much harder to do it on the way out. So good for them for. Well, and since you mentioned Deer Creek, that was a, a trap for the unwary for many, many people. They, Deer Creek, I believe, was the one where they actually took a trailer and just set it up in the parking lot so they could have immediate court hearings and just process it as quickly as they could write the tickets. Oh, wow. Larry, I'll, I'll give you a story from Deer Creek. There's all the campgrounds that were surrounding it where you never had to get back on the highway. You could just drive the back roads to the campgrounds. I had a U-Haul sure. truck one time at Deer Creek that I put about 25 uh, Wookiees in the back of with a nitrous tank, a keg, and a you know, handful of Sammy Smith big boys. And I get pulled into, the, um, pulled into the campground, and right as I did, you heard this huge crash in the back of the U-Haul, and uh, someone had knocked over the nitrous tank, and it was just spraying everywhere. It was just freezing everything in the place, this cloud. And there was a cop and a security guard for the KOA campground. They're like, would you mind opening the back of this thing? <laughs> So I open up the back of it, and it's literally this cloud of nitrous with, like, you know, a bunch of people holding Sammy Smith's tall boy, like, oatmeal stouts and nut browns. The cop looks at me, dead in the eye, and goes, that's just too much paperwork. Closes the thing up, pretends he hasn't seen it, and lets me in. It was one of the great, like, I was looking at him, like, this is the most absurd thing this cop has probably ever seen. A bunch of dread, he's like, hey! (laughs) He's like, just go, just get in there. (laughs) Okay, that's all good fun. Um, and uh, really quickly, one other thing, Jim, you had mentioned uh, at the top of the show, uh, Dick's Picks 38 is out. Your thoughts on that? Yes, I got to listen to that extensively over the weekend. Uh, very much enjoyed it. Got to read all the liner notes. And what's interesting about those shows of, I believe it's September of 73, is it was right at the time when um, Wake of the Flood was either just come out or had um, coming out shortly thereafter. So many of the deadheads were hearing songs like Eyes of the World for the very first time. Well, and not only that, uh, uh, Dave Lemieux, when he was talking about it, he said the reason they picked the show was it was one of Phil's favorite, uh, not Phil, uh, Dick Lovatla's favorites. And one of the reasons why they liked it so much was you just said it yourself. They had discovered over time that tours immediately following studio sessions tended to be much better because the band was very tight from the studio sessions and they could kind of carry it over onto the tour. And this is really, I have to say, in terms of, you know, the amount of music they're giving us on these things, because you don't just get the entire 9-8 show on, the, on that album. They throw on a bird song and a plane from the night before and the bird song, I think, is the best of them all. But then if you got the bonus disc for the guys like me who still subscribe after all these years, you get like another hour's worth of the day before. I mean, it's just two tremendous shows from one of their favorite venues in the New York area. And it's the other thing that I really like about it is it, it, it's it's within a reasonable shouting distance of the Skull and Roses shows, right? So you, the, the version of Bertha uh, that they play to open it is very similar to the Skull and Roses Bertha, but even better at the end of the show, just like on, on the, I think it's on side four of Skull and Roses is the Not Fade Away Going Down the Road Not Fade Away Jam, which Again, it's just, you know, they just play their butts off. It's really, really. And then after that, they still fall into Stella Blue. So, you know, I mean, it's well worth it. It's a great album, a great time period. Go listen to it. 
I see why so many uh, sophisticated deadheads like that 1973 era. Yeah, you know, look, it, no coincidence. They had been doing a lot of recording, and, you know, they came out, and they were at the top of their game, and they just killed it. It was a good year for them. Okay, guys, I think we are running out of time. Andy, before we go, I forgot to ask you this before. How do people who are interested in hearing more about Society Jane or if they live in the appropriate area ordering from you, get in touch with you? Well, Larry, I'm glad you asked. They can go to our website, which is societyjane.com, and they can also look us up on Instagram, where we are at societyjanefun. Okay. Very good. So people who uh, want to get in on the game and uh, enjoy it, that's the place to go if you're in the Bay Area or the nearabouts. Uh, thank you again, Andy, for joining us again. It's a pleasure to have you back and appreciate your time and all the good things you had to share. Um, Rob Hunt, any uh, words of parting for our audience? Just excited to uh, have another fun show next week with our guest Alex Beard who's joining us from New Orleans. So that should be a really fun show, so make sure you tune in for that. And Andy, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us this week. That was a lot of fun. It's great to be here again. I'll do it anytime. Well, thank you very much. And um, next week, uh, I will not be here because I'll be on vacation. But when I get back, I want to give you folks an update on the um, 80th anniversary of Red Rocks. It was very fun. And then I also want to uh, I'll be able to give a review of the uh, psychedelic conference in Denver that I'm going to on Friday. Oh, very nice. Tagging onto our show from last week with Noah Potter and uh, his psychedelic law practice. It seemed like after our show aired, uh, there seemed to be a lot of articles popping up all of a sudden about it. So, you know, maybe we're just slightly ahead of the game. Or I'd like to, th like to think so, at least. Well, Jim, we'll miss you next week. Safe travels. Um, and so for everyone, this is Larry Mishkin. Thank you again for listening to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Uh, we will look forward to seeing you next week. Uh, enjoy your cannabis responsibly. And? <laughs> and Jim, at the Psychedelics Conference, there's your chance to eat more acid. <laughs> okay. Wonderful. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% .9 of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.